Here we go. The Earth Fox Podcast. Welcome to the Earth Fox Podcast. With 404. Missing link. Yeah, he's a great man, by the way. Please don't forget to like, share, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And visit us at vox404.com. Enjoy the show. Well, I should begin, I guess, by correcting myself. Even though I don't, it was one of those scenarios where I'm speaking and I think I'm speaking correctly. And then I realize via feedback that I've misspoken. And I said, Joseph Young was the founder of Mormonism. And I don't know where I got that. It could have been uh, Brigham Young University, the Mormon University in Utah. It also may have been the uh, movie Mighty Joe Young from however many years ago that I don't even remember, but I just only remember that it was a thing. And I don't even remember if I brought it up on the show or not that I hadn't been feeling well that morning. Uh, But unfortunately, this morning is no better. I don't know. I I don't know what my problem is, man. See, I wonder if it's COVID. (laughs) The dreaded COVID. Whether whether it is or not, let's just go with it. That's, yeah, you should drive to Washington D.C. and uh, see if you can pass it off to some of those fuckers over there. Oh yeah, that's. I mean, we we've woefully avoided a government shutdown. Although there's another one looming, and we can't agree on a speaker of the house. But I think I ate some bad. Well, I know I ate some bad sour cream. But here's the thing, right? You, you can get a taco salad in the UK, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, sure. You might not want to, but, but if I traveled to the UK myself and thought, boy, I could really go for a taco salad, I'd be able to locate one. Um, actually, it would be quite tough. I mean, it's possible, uh, but you'd have to look really hard, man. Well, I feel extraordinarily ignorant saying, hey, do you know what a taco salad is? But I really couldn't, I wouldn't be surprised one way or the other. Yeah, 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 yeah. So no dressing on my taco salad. I just use uh, some salsa and some sour cream. Right. And I'm getting ready to, or I'm, you know, I'm putting everything together after I get home from work last night. And I, I look, I just happen to, for whatever reason, oh, I noticed the consistency after oh. I had already dumped the sour cream all over my taco oh, salad, no. that it was, and, and so I checked on the side to learn that the sour cream was five days expired, but it wasn't moldy mm. and it didn't smell off. So I thought, okay, oh, you know, whatever. Like I've already, I'm not going to ruin my entire meal that's such a guy thing uh do the sniff test right yeah seems all right there's nothing growing on it (laughs) it's good to go and then uh but i mean unrelated to the to the taco salad why one of my kids came into the room last night this morning it was about 2 a.m and i don't know what was going on exactly 
but things are being knocked off of the side table on my wife's side of the bed and hitting the ground, bang, and then it happened again, bang, and then she's oh, talking no. to the kid. And, you know, no, no big deal, whatever. But I had a stomach ache. And I had to get up and go to the restroom. And I never really fully went back to sleep. So, oh, that sucks. So from 2 a.m., I've been basically awake, except for, oh, I don't know, maybe 20 minutes where I fell asleep and had a nightmare that all of the uh, detergents. So basically, the dream goes, I'm standing in the kitchen. I'm standing in my kitchen. And there's a giant, I mean, giant like the size of a person, because, you know, it's a dream. <laughs> A giant tub of a dishwashing machine detergent that's somehow gotten a hole in the side of it and is dumping all over the floor. And then I look towards the laundry room and the, the giant tub of uh, laundry detergent also has a hole in it and is spilling all, all over the floor oh, in the laundry room. It's a fucking nightmare. And there was, yeah, there was something else too. Like, I don't know, maybe the sink was overflowing. And uh, yes, it was, it was total chaos. And that's been my last four hours, tossing and turning, trying to fall asleep, almost falling asleep. And then, so a, a lot of the time, since you and I started doing this show together, and we've been taking it really seriously and, and, you know, buying ads and the whole nine. I have had a little bit of anxiety just about being prepared, about being smooth, about having good content, good, yeah. you know, conversational transitions and stuff. So there would be times where I might wake up in the middle of the night and I'd get a little pang of anxiety. Oh, no. About the upcoming show. But that was not the case. Except, like, for weeks, I've been totally relaxed and confident about doing this show. Great, 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 great. But last night, slash, I mean, I say last night because that's, you know, when people are supposed to be sleeping, but technically it was early this morning. I would be just about to fall back to sleep, and I would get this this feeling like you know the feeling like when you have forgotten something important ah uh, i hate that but and you, it's usually true too like <laughs> like where that feeling of cold washes over you and yeah, it feels like your fuck. skin gets a little bit tighter but it was it was oh, all from dude, nothing ugh. it was all from nothing there was no it was like oh almost almost asleep almost asleep and then What's happened? What did I forget? Oh, nothing. Oh, damn it. Now, now it's 2.30. I'm still not asleep. Oh, now, now, it's, 3 a, now it's 3 a.m. I'm still not asleep. <coughs> Dan, that's, that's crazy. I, I, uh, I, had a better, I had a better sleep than, than you did last night, although my morning has been a nightmare. Have you ever changed a fuel filter on a diesel truck? Um, I've changed a fuel filter a time or two, but not, uh, not on a, on a diesel truck. Oh my God. It's like, I don't think that thing has been changed for 10 years. I only picked the truck up this, this year and it wasn't looked after very well. And I've gone through lots of problems with it that I've 
managed to solve and the oil filter was like fucking welded on there so i had to oh no try and get that bad boy off it was that was a nightmare and then the fuel filter is similar it's like an oil filter uh but it's it screws in both ends there's a sensor on both both sides and uh for the life of me, I couldn't get it off. The only way I got it off was by drilling a hole in it, sticking a screwdriver in it, and like just wrenching the shit out of it uh, in the rain. Because, of course, oh, no. it's the UK. <laughs> and I'm in the rain. And then I needed the truck, and I was like, oh my god, why did I do this before I needed it? Um, but I eventually got it off. But it, was, it, like, it, just comp- it doesn't even need to be, okay, this is a PSA for anyone working on like this kind of shit. You do not have to tighten up filters like that it's hand tight yeah and then it's good and you're supposed to put Shit. a smear a little oil on it like that was yeah what like one of the only things i mean i wouldn't say i'm against g- traditional education going to school and stuff like that but they really don't i mean for me school is more about socializing in like in a in a positive way not like in a disruptive distracting sort of way but one of the few things that i've taken with me from school is i i was in an auto mechanics class and i learned not only do you put the you only put the oil filter on as as tight as you can get it with your hand you also got to smear a little oil on that rubber gasket and dump a little oil inside. And I, when I hear you say you couldn't get your oil filter off because it felt like it was welded on there, I think, I bet that guy, I bet the last guy that put it on didn't rub a little oil on the, on the rubber gasket when he tightened uh, it on there. He probably used one of those tools. You can get tools to, to get the oil filters off when they're kind of stuck. He probably used a tool to put it back on and just, you know, just crank the shit out of it. And yeah. probably did the same thing to the fuel filter, too, because the fuel filter looks just like an oil filter. Uh, it's a giant metal thing. Yeah, all the... Oh, my God. I changed the fuel filter on my little Audi Quattro TT. Oh, yeah. And uh, that was... It was a pain to get to because, you know, those things basically just lay flat on the ground. But... uh once you know, once you locate it and you can get your hands around it, it's it's pretty straightforward. Just a little inline, little inline filter, you know, hose. Yeah, on. you see, that's what I was used to. Like I was used to petrol cars and you know other other cars where you know it's low pressure and you know it's just an inline filter where you just take the fuel lines off each side. But you know, with this older diesel truck, right, everything's just big. You know, and the the fuel filter is on this like regulator thing, and it's got sensors on both sides with a plastic screw in sensor on the bottom, and then the fuel filter itself is this massive metal thing that you screw on, and it looks just like an oil filter basically. And and oh my god, I just take the whole thing apart. I just take the air filter out. I just take the air box out. I just take all this shit out just so I can get, just so I could um. The only way I could do it was by putting the whole uh fuel filter block assembly back in the car so i could bolt it in just so i could get the screwdriver in and pull hard enough on it because i literally couldn't put i put it i tried to put it in the vice i tried to like step on it and pull on it i couldn't do anything the only thing i could do is just put it back in there and use my entire body weight to try and get that shit out and luckily it fucking moved 
otherwise, I don't know what the fuck I'd be doing now. I'd probably be going down to a local garage trying to get them to unstick that thing. But holy shit. Uh, yes. And you're just laying on the ground in the rain trying to, trying to do it well, yourself. L- <laughs> I mean, luckily, it's actually in the engine bay, like right above. Like right on the sort of like the the just just uh, by the driver's side on your on your, on your cars by the driver's side on in, in the engine bay it's right above which which is, makes it really good it's really accessible nice. um, but and that would be great in a perfect world where you just untwist the fuel filter uh, but when it's literally welded on like that it's like you know it doesn't really matter it, it's just I'd almost rather it be underneath the car and then then you'd have space to get the to get some tools in there and try and like just PV that shit out there. But actually it was, you know, it's kind of like stuck in the top right hand side of the engine bay. So it's one of the, yeah, what a, what a nightmare. And one of the interesting elements of the new, uh, more fuel efficient cars with all the new electronics is everything. So smashed together. And you, you hear, you know, I don't know a lot of auto mechanics, but you always hear stories. About how, oh, yeah, had to pull the engine just to change the starter. It's ridiculous, you know, because everything is so, you know, it's, it's engineered for efficiency. Yeah, it, it's so ridiculous. Like, but the stuff that I think that they do, and I don't really understand why they do it. Like, my dad's Audi Quattro. It doesn't have an oil dipstick. It's a digital one. Oh, wow. And I don't trust that. I don't know about you, but I, I don't trust that. There's too much that can go wrong. And then, oh, you need a new motor now. Sorry. Yeah, this sensor went out and you didn't know. And so uh, you're that's what I'm seized. Yeah, no good. Yeah, like that. Like, why, why would you re-engineer that? It's just a metal rod that goes into the tank. Like, yeah. I, I don't understand why you would re-engineer that. It saved you, you know, pound 50. <laughs> To not put Fuck a yeah. to not put a dipstick in in every motor, or who knows, it could be like a compression thing, or it, it's. I'd be willing to bet it's all about saving a few pennies per unit, or even yeah. being able to say to your shareholders, "It's going to save us this much money." Like this is one of the the main issues I have in the corporate world is your entire function as a CEO is to please the shareholders and like the, the board of directors. So you come up with all of these ways to not necessarily increase efficiency or profitability, but just hoodwink your shareholders into thinking that the things that you're doing are going to you know raise the stock price and then the, the whole time you're uh, just that reminds me um now you just mentioned it, it reminds me of uh the guy that uh started and ran we work do you know about this do you know about the collapse of we work uh i barely even recognize the name we work okay so this is really cool that i get to explain this on the show to both you and the listeners so WeWork I'm excited. is a company that creates 
shared office spaces. So say you have it that's geared towards startups. So say you have a startup company and you want an office space, let's say in London, New York, any major sort of urban area. Instead of the previous model where you would, you know, have to rent a floor or, you know, rent a building or something, they say, no problem. You can just rent like a few rooms or a few desks in a, in a room. And it's like a really cool sort of like hip place and you pay X amount per, per desk or something like that. Sounds like a pretty good idea. Shared office spaces aren't a new idea, but they touted it as more of a modern... Um, more of a modern uh, type deal. The problem with this is it's one of those unicorn companies that's never made any money. Mm. And essentially the guy that ran it was an amazing salesperson. Absolutely amazing. And he did exactly that. He, he would, you know, hoodwink uh, investors and shareholders into going, well, this is more of a tech company. When in reality, what they are is they're a real estate company. Okay. They, they, they acquired money to buy up big massive skyscraper or big buildings in in urban areas with huge costs and then rent them out to companies that were more startup based which quite often have not that much money they don't survive very long right and so you have really expensive real estate with a clientele that is more flaky than you might have let's say like a bank by you know renting your building or or uh another large multinational corporation having their headquarters there. And so this company has completely and utterly cratered. I mean, big time. The all of WeWork could actually affect the economy in a serious way because they own so much uh, real estate around the world and they also uh, owe so much money to so many people. And I think it was, I think it was this year they failed on that, like maybe a couple of their... Uh, debt repayments and so they're um they're they're really really struggling but that's a really good example of that sort of like ceo where the only the only uh motivation for them is just to get to the next valuation get to the next um you know get to the next bit where they can tell the shareholders they're doing great or just keep them at bay and raise more capital raise more capital raise more capital um and it didn't work. And we're talking about big money. Like SoftBank Group acquired them for $5 billion. All right. So. Well, then mission then, accomplished, right? They. Well, they no, made the well, no, well, no, well, no, well, <sighs> no. Not really. I mean, Newman is a billionaire now and he's a great, he's a great sales guy, but most of his shares are tied up in that company. Uh. And the shares have absolutely cratered one of the worst ipos ever recorded other than robin hood um but the yeah, ipo completely <laughs> failed fucking robin yeah. hood i know robin hood it was a massive failure but um yeah like look looking at this graph i got on my screen right now which is just outrageous i yeah. mean it was at i'm the, looking at, at the, the guardian peak. article too yeah, like at the peak, it was valued at forty-seven billion. So if you imagine, you've got all your money tied up in a company that's worth forty-seven billion, and then it gets sold for five. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. And now it's now its market cap in August twenty twenty-three was zero point four billion. Zero point four. It's worth four hundred million. And so you know, if if he's done any <laughs> stock buybacks or anything like that during that time, he's probably lost money. Uh, and that's just because. They've got all these, and anyone that knows anything about the economy right now, 
like commercial real estate is 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 basically fallen off a cliff because companies don't want to well because people are working remotely and companies don't want to expand right now in in a economy that's kind of tanking a little bit uh no one's buying office space no one's buying shared office spaces no one's doing that and so we work has some of the most expensive office space on earth and no one wants it were they associated with uh wechat no that's completely different so wechat is a chinese based uh, social media company and they have no relation to we work but we work is related to the company we transfer which is a, a file transferring service interesting they so yeah we wechat is like what uh elon musk wants to make twitter x twix yeah actually it's probably a good idea like we wechat you know if wechat wasn't as intrusive in your life as it is in china it's actually a pretty good app to be honest like it kind of does everything it's a one-stop shop for your entire life and it works really really well the downside of of that app is the fact that it's basically spyware right like like everything is anymore like my my kids are downloading all of these mobile games on their amazon tablet and uh then my wife starts, my wife will download some of the same ones or similar ones on her phone for the kids. Like, uh, you know, here, kind of just as like, here, play this game and shut up for a minute, kind of a thing. But I, I just can't help but wonder, I mean, not only are they total scams for yeah. just, you know, bleeding you dry, and then also you have to watch an ad you you play the game for one minute and then you have to watch an ad for two minutes which drives my kids crazy which makes me just ultimately hate the damn things but i can't imagine what kind of spyware it's planting on all of the devices constantly wow it can't be good no i mean they're all based they're they're all products of china anyway for the most yeah, do, part do you know uh do you know the the app Timu? yeah yeah i see ads for yes. it all the time yeah so the reason why you know because Timu lose money on all the products they sell um but the reason why they do that is because it's basically just spyware and they sell your data for profit and they make so much money out of that data um that they can they can afford to lose money on the products that you buy through that platform. And that's why they advertise so much because they, they, really the, the, the product is you. Yeah. Um, it's not what you're buying. That's interesting. But that's definitely the most, uh, that's definitely the most heinous one that I've seen that works in the Western world. In China, it's very commonplace. But the, the most heinous one that I've seen is, is, is TeamU. I mean, TeamU basically don't give a shit about anything, uh, about GDPR, the CCPNA, they, they don't care about nothing. Actually, on my own website, I have TMU like bots that visit my website every now and again to like scrape the content on it, and I've blocked them from doing that. Um, they don't give a shit about uh, like the, the on websites you have something called a robots.txt. And the robots.txt basically says what bots are allowed to. A view on your website and what kind of bots are allowed to view your website at all 
and usually bots will respect this if they're fairly normal bots. Let's say like Google bots, Bing bots, DuckDuckGo. And this uh, is the reason that we have the uh, the the captcha tests to get into so many websites. Yeah, but the captcha the captcha is a problem in itself. In that the captcha is actually such a massive drain on society and it's actually yes i agree <laughs> like like if you total up it. the amount of time even the inventor of the capture said that that although it's done a fantastic job in you know removing bot traffic from from certain sites you know the the level of um inconvenience that it's offered to humans as a whole because it's so widespread now is is quite great and it does two things first of all it wastes energy Right, you know the electricity <laughs> it wastes from, you know, having a server request every time, and then the amount of time that that that, that someone spends doing that, as well as then the human has to spend, you know, between thirty seconds to a minute doing the puzzle if they get it for the first time. If they don't, they have to do it again and again and again and again and again. So th- there are lots of new technologies coming out, um, and that's why the big biometrics and sort of um, this space is coming out in a big way right now because a lot of companies are looking at how do they get rid of the capture while um, getting rid of the the bot traffic. Is it true Um, that you could do like a slow click or like a long press and tell the capture right away that you're a human? There there was this, this rumor going around online. Like if you, if you click, like if you don't just do a regular click, like if you press down for a second and then release, it it recognizes, oh, that's a human doing that. So I can just bypass the CAPTCHA? No, that's not how it works. It depends on what CAPTCHA you're using. There's different versions. There's version 1, version 2, and version 3. Version 3 is something more akin to what you're talking about, which I think some people will, will get confused by, by thinking that they've They've somehow gone around the system, and 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 um, version three essentially puts a JavaScript script on your on your phone while you're on the website and detects if you're a human or not by the activity that you do on the screen, as well as um, takes information about your device and tries to figure out if it's if it's a if it's a bot device or if it's a, an actual device used by a human. And so usually that's only just a button that you press, or it automatically um, uh, grants you access to whatever you're trying to capture. So how, um, uh, but in, in version two, then version two is, is the puzzle. How were the bots able to get past the, the previous versions? Because it, it, it used to start out, right? Or when it, when it first started, it was just enter these five characters that were, you know, like drawn in, you know, diagonally across the screen or something like that. And then there was... The next version I remember is, oh, now, okay, so now it's getting a little bit more difficult to see what letters they are. But if I look closely, I can distinguish, you know, the letters from the rest of the background noise and punch that in. Okay. But now all that's gone. Now I have to pick the staircase, you know, every picture that has a staircase in nine images. Yeah. How are these these bots getting, getting through these things? Well, the technology to be able to pick up uh, text in images has has become a lot better over the last over the last years, like a lot better to the point where you can take a picture on your phone of some handwriting and it will automatically uh, detect it as as um, 
as text. And so people would do that, you know, they would run a Python script, a very simple Python script that would make a request to a website. And then uh, when it would detect the capture uh, script, it would then take a, a screenshot of the, of the, of the simulated uh, computer screen. And then it would read that and then enter in um, what it believed to be the, the letters. And, you know, there, there might be a pass-fail rate that I don't, I don't know of. It depends on the kind of technology they were using. But let's say they get it right 50% of the time. That pretty much completely defeats that, that device. And so then they had to move to the V2 where it was a little bit more of an interactive challenge where you're using more JavaScript and a lot of bots don't use JavaScript. Um, they can't load JavaScript because they're not technically a browser. They're just making a request. So the only thing they'll be able to read is, is the HTML or the PHP or whatever, just the standard thing. And um, then, of course, now you're having to make more difficult decisions. You're having to pick out items or things in an image. And that's more difficult because, number one, you have to have something that can read the, the image. And fine, we can take a screenshot, let's say, and, and, and figure out what it is. But number two, you have to have a tagging database big enough so that you can compare the images against what you have uh, in your database. And for humans, that's quite easy because, you know, our relational uh, database and our brains functions incredibly efficiently. You know, I can look outside and I know that that looks a little bit like a tree and, and, and therefore I'm going to make a guess that that's, that's a tree. And it might be a tree I've not seen before, but I'm going to take a good guess and say that's a tree. And it might be a sycamore tree or it might be an oak tree. It looks a little bit different, but I know that it's a tree. But for a computer, it doesn't really know that. You have to tell it, these are a bunch of trees. And then when it sees a tree, it goes, I think this is a tree. Uh, and so you need, so this is much more difficult for, for a robot to do because you have to have not just a database of, of letters, which can be compressed into like a 25 kilobyte file. You have to have image data, which could be terabytes, if not petabytes of database data to do all this tagging. So. Is a, uh, is a but, petabyte you know, a, yeah. a thousand terabytes? Yes. So what do people want these bots for? Oh, God. Well, okay, so first of all, there's the data scraping, right? So you can go and, let's say, uh, um, let's say Amazon wants to scrape all of the um, eBay listings, right? To try and figure out what's selling the most. Uh, what are people selling and, and what do the descriptions look like and, and what are the reviews like? And we'll just scrape all that and use that for data to, to, push, our, to push our store. That, that could be something that someone could use that for nefariously. So they, got, send, um, uh, they send the bots to view the websites and, and the bots just gather all of the information from, from all of the pages? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, it's called screen scraping. Um, people use it all the time to sell data from social media, to sell data from e-commerce websites. And that's probably the most commercial, nefarious way that people use it. The second obvious way is they use bots for automatic um, penetration testing of websites. And so basically they have a set rule set, which it goes to a certain website and tries a bunch of the really common um, security uh, things that people may not think to do on a small website. You know, if you're on WordPress and you haven't really locked down your site, you know, it can start doing things like code injection, SQL injection, bad comments, uh, really just messing around with login. And then from there, you know, once, once a, a bot can figure that out, maybe they can get control of the website. If they can get control of the website, then they can start to, uh, 
find any data on there. There might be some emails. There might be some usernames. There might be some credit card information. There might be an ability to use it as a slave computer, so you can do like DDoS attacks from it. So the two major ways I would say people use bots are, you know, data scraping and for finding, um, you know, bugs and security issues with sites that they can then exploit for whatever they they, they need. But for, for the most part, like, you know, most modern good bots uh, do two things, you know, well, two or three things. Uh, one would be search engines. That's the biggest bot, really, that you're going to find. And then second is website testing, speed testing, SEO testing. And then the third one is probably like um, a status bot that would constantly ping a website to make sure that if it's up or not, and if it isn't up, then it sends you a text message or something. So those are the, probably the three major bots that I can, I can see being around, but I hope that answers your question. Yeah. It, well, it makes me wonder how much of our recent interaction with our ad was bot traffic because we had, uh, you know, we had those keywords in the title, Israel, Palestine, you know, hot topics. And I mean, this is one thing that, uh, Elon Musk is really struggling with over at Twitter slash X is getting rid of the bot traffic. And he's recently proposed uh, charging something like a dollar a year to every Twitter user. If you want to use Twitter moving forward, you have to pay him a dollar just once a year, a dollar. How now he thinks that's going to reduce bot traffic. Do you agree? A dollar a year doesn't seem like that much. Um, it's it's a tough thing to think to think about. You know, the actual dollar amount is not something that someone would be. You know, obviously, that's not going to put anyone off. It's the act of putting your financial information into a company, and that means you have to have your bank details and your name against your account. Uh, and that for someone that wants to do nefarious bot activities is going to be kind of. That that's gonna that's gonna kill that for them because currently you can make an account with a random email no problem but it'll pick up that you're using the same bank account for a thousand different accounts and and probably throw a flag up yeah for real like you know they 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 it would make it easier for them to blacklist them as, as well as the if if any of those companies or if any of those people do illegal activity and it's against Twitter's uh, terms of policy to, to do to do this um, kind of thing, but I believe oh, the law is so vague on this. But I believe that it is in some cases illegal to use distributed bots on certain platforms or online with the intention of uh, it's something like wasting computer resources or. Uh, you know what? I'm not going to go further into that. I don't really know it, but essentially, that there is a way where people can be uh, criminally investigated for for using bots in in a bad way on social media. It's more technical than it is like freedom freedom of speech kind of thing. It's it's more of a technical thing. Well, I know, um, and so yeah, so so yeah. The, I think for them, you know, that risk of putting their own name and their own uh, bank details onto something that they want to do for obvious nefarious means is is probably something that would discourage them i don't think it's going to have the effect elon thinks it's going to have um i think the best always the best um you know bot detection from from my aspect would be um something you know really invasive uh like things that would actually study how you use the the app in real time 
and it's really, really invasive. Um, but if Elon can guarantee that the data would be segregated from everything else, and that model would only be used for you know um, detecting bot traffic, then I would be totally okay with it. And to be fair, it is covered in GDPR that you're allowed to use certain customer data in a necessary way for bot protection. And so what you could do is you could say, okay, let's make a really invasive, um, you know, like app tracking software that tracks how people use the app. Um, and we'll, you, we'll, we won't do anything. We'll just let it train for a year. And then we'll, we'll know that this is how people usually use the app. And if people start doing it in a different way, then that flags it up and we can, we can maybe, you know, control that account a little bit or dial it down or, or get rid of them if it's, if it's fairly nefarious. And we'll keep that data air gapped from the rest of our data that does advertising and, and that kind of thing. I think that's probably the only way you're going to do it on an app anyways. Well, I remember there was a, when, when Elon was buying Twitter, however long ago it was now, he wanted to independently assess Twitter's proprietary software yeah. to establish how many bots were actually using the platform. Or, you yeah. know, maybe using isn't the right terminology, but it was very controversial. Because Elon was saying that about half the users on Twitter were, were actually bots. And of course, Twitter being the publicly traded company that it was at the time, did not want that information getting out. No, and I actually agree with Elon. Um, I remember Twitter saying that it was 5%. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. laughed. <laughs> I laughed so hard at that because that would, that, would, that would be significantly lower than even the worldwide average for bot traffic. Like the worldwide average for bot traffic, I've got it up here on um, Cloudflare Radar. And Cloudflare Radar is a fantastic site for just investigating large trends in um, internet traffic. You know, you can see when dictatorships turn off their internet, for example. Uh, really, really cool, really cool tool. And on here, I can see that um, right now we have 28% bot traffic on, on the internet. Okay. Uh, so you'd imagine that Twitter, in the old model anyways, would have been pretty similar to that 28%, you know, almost 30%. So if you think about 30% of all comments or likes or interactions are going to be bot traffic. And that seems more plausible than 5%, which I would say is an absolutely outrageously low number. Um, I don't know how they've got to that number. All I can think of is that their, their tracking of what is and isn't bot traffic is so bad that most bots are able to get around it. And so, that, and so the only number they had was 5%. And, con um, and that's conveniently bad, to... right? Conveniently bad. Conveniently bad. Yeah, but if you, if you look at the way Twitter was, was run, I mean, it was just run horribly. They had far too many employees. They had loads of code that was all over the fucking place. They had, they had features that were just sitting on the back burner, not being merged into the main, into, into production. Uh, and then, you know, Elon with his brother came in and, and just fucking refactored the whole thing in like at night um, and streamlined a lot of the code and, and brought in some of, the, some of the features. So 
I don't think it's one of these nefarious things because, you know, for, for Twitter, it hurts Twitter more than it hurts anyone else. Like, right. for them to have loads of bot traffic, it just sucks because people just end up leaving the platform because they realize it, it's more bot traffic than it is human traffic. And who the fuck wants to talk to a bot? Not me. I don't, I don't, I don't want to talk to a bot. So, well, how, I, you know, their code was just shit. How consequential is it for advertisers? When Twitter is showing all this engagement and they're selling it like it's real people engaging with their ads and viewing massively consequential viewing their ads, but you could inflate your ad prices to show, I mean, to represent that you're getting all of these human eyes on your ad. Like a, a potential adver- advertiser comes to Twitter and says, oh, yeah, you, you know, we, we want a, a million eyes on our ad and we're willing to pay this much per impression or whatever. Well, if 30% of those eyes are bots, yeah, then that's a misrepresentation of value by Twitter, isn't it? Absolutely, it is. And, um, you know, for, for the most part, any good marketing um, agency that runs... because most most companies don't do this themselves they have an agency that does it for them with, you know with twitter or facebook or whatever and most good marketing agencies they should most of them are shit i won't i won't lie most of them are shit but most of them should not measure it you know based on cost per click or or uh cost per impression or something like that really what they should be doing is is going on cost per you know lead or cost per opportunity where you know how much does it cost us on on twitter to convert someone to actually buying our product um, and, and as long as that is a reasonable number, it doesn't really matter what the end sort of price of, of the Twitter ads are. You know, if you're measuring it cost per click, then for sure you're going to be, you're, you're, you're going to be, wow, this is amazing. Um, but you know, that, that tends to, with any good marketing person or, or agency, let's say you've never done the Twitter thing before. And you start to run ads and you get really good engagement, but it's not translating that well to sales. You might get, let's say, 25% engagement and it translates to 1% sales. And you're thinking, hmm, that's a bit weird. Uh, you know, if you're getting 25% engagement and people are clicking through and then obviously something's not happening right. And as long as nothing was configured wrong on your end, you know, let's say you have a form to fill out and that goes to selling something or there's a product that people buy, then that would be a, an immediate red flag. And then from there, they don't do it anymore. Um, but from what I can see, you know, currently in the advertiser space, you know, people aren't running ads on Twitter just as a general rule. Maybe they don't like Elon Musk. Uh, maybe the ad, you know, I mean, that overall comment. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was one of the comments on, uh, on our ad that we just recently ran. How can you be sponsoring this terrible platform? That, oh, that hosts sake. these, and and he was talking about Andrew Tate. This horrible, blah blah blah, just piles and piles of propaganda laced with disgust and disdain that we would possibly run an ad on. Yeah, and one he's of the commented only, it on what he's commented it on what on 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 wait what on he's commented it on X on Twitter. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. What a fucking idiot! He's supporting it himself. Well, and that's why I say, like, how much, how much of this is, is bot traffic or, or even just bad actors? I, I watched this video this morning about, um, well, maybe we should play it. 
Yeah, sure. Let, let's play it. I mean, you know, just from the outside looking in, like, there's no way for us to know. Um, the only people that would know would be Twitter, right? They've got all the data and witness we can really guess um, this somewhere around the 28% mark uh, or maybe a little bit higher, maybe a, bit, a little bit lower. I know it's not five. Well, I, I wasn't really, I, was, I, I wasn't even planning on playing this. It's just the conversation has, has gone that way. But this is, um, well, she, uh, she introduces her, her bona fides. Or she oh, yeah. recognized for five minutes. Miss Morris. And then she's like getting her microphone set up or something. Thank you. Thanks so much for inviting me. Um, my name is Emma Jo Morris, a politics editor at Breitbart. Um, I'm here today because I published a series of news stories three years ago in October of 2020 about Hunter Biden's now infamous laptop, also known as the laptop from hell, uh, which is seen as some of the most scandalous reporting of the last decade. Um, what was more scandalous than the reporting itself, though, was the fact that it exposed the unholy alliance between the intelligence community, social media platforms, and legacy media outlets. At the time, I was deputy politics editor at the New York Post, and um, my reporting showed that despite then-candidates Joe Biden's repeated and furious denials, he was apparently involved in the foreign business deals of his family. Over several days, just weeks before Americans would vote for their next president, I revealed verified, authentic emails from the Biden Scions hard drive showing Ukrainian business partners receiving leaks from the Obama White House. I documented an off-the-books meeting between then-Vice President Biden and a Ukrainian energy executive and introduced the world to the big guy um, who got action on a deal with CEFC, China Energy Company. The Post published exactly how the material for the reporting was obtained, even identifying our sources, um, as well as a federal subpoena showing the FBI was in possession of the material the story was based on and had been since December of 2019. Um, but when the stories appeared on social media that morning, the venue where millions of Americans go to find their news and editors to get their angles, uh, within hours the reporting was censored on all major platforms on the basis of being called hacked or Russian disinformation. Um, Twitter refused to allow users to share the link to the stories, banned the links from being shared in private messages, a policy, by the way, that's used to clamp down on child porn um, and lock the post out of its verified account. Facebook said it would curb distribution and reach of the links on its platform. However, the stories were not based on hacked materials, nor were they Russian disinformation, and despite those claims appearing to come out of thin air at the time, we would eventually learn that they actually didn't come out of thin air at all. On October 19th, five days after the Post began publishing, Politico ran a story headlined, Hunter Biden's story is Russian disinfo, dozens of former Intel officials say. God, I can't even say that with a straight face, you know? <laughs> Politico printed a letter completely uncritically from veteran members of the U.S. intelligence community falsely claiming that the post-exposé has, quote, all the classic earmarks of a Russian information operation. My God. <laughs> Most notable among the signatories of that letter were Jim Clapper from 
former DNI, Michael Hayden, former CIA, John Brennan, former CIA, despite having such damaged credibility following their participation in the Russia collusion conspiracy theory. A few days later, on October 22nd, when Biden appeared in the second presidential debate and was uh, confronted with the facts of the Post's reporting, he said to Trump, quote, 50 former national intelligence professionals said this, what he's accusing me of is a Russian plot. But it was not. Um, and he knew that. Now, fast forward to this year, three years later. Just last spring, House investigators revealed it was a call by now Secretary of State Antony Blinken to former acting CIA Director Michael Morell that prompted the spy letter published by Politico, which bypassed agency approval processes that would have been normally applied. It is also now known that ahead of my reporting, federal agencies were priming social media companies to execute an operation to discredit it. According to internal documents released by Elon Musk upon his acquisition of Twitter, the FBI and other intelligence community members essentially directed the platform's censorship operation, in part externally by working with top management and in part internally by social media companies hiring eye-popping numbers of agency alumni. That's the part that I wanted to get to. So we know some of the saga of, uh, you know, Elon Musk acquiring Twitter. Right. Was that FBI lawyers were working as lawyers for Twitter. And even after Elon Musk bought the company, they were allowed to stay on for a a certain period of time. And this was all when uh, the, the Twitter files were coming out. When Elon Musk allowed, you know, Matt Taibbi and, and Michael Schellenberger and Barry Weiss, you know, very respected up until, you know, the last three years, yeah. very, very respected investigative journalists that wouldn't even, I mean, they wouldn't even go into an interview and say who they wanted, who they were planning on voting for, for president, because they wanted to maintain that impartiality. Right. While these people were combing through emails and other correspondence with government and they were discovering these connections to the FBI and the CIA and other intelligence agencies, this guy, I want to say his name was Clapper, was, he was largely responsible for proofing all of the documents to be released by these journalists. And he, while and while he was working for Twitter approving these whistleblower reports or denying these whistleblower reports, he was also working with the FBI to mitigate their exposure. So when we talk about social media companies not making much money, being overrun with bots and then also being staffed in huge numbers yeah by current and former intelligence agents it all kind of starts to come together in my mind like oh the reason these companies aren't making much money on paper is because they're gigantic propaganda tools that are used to sway public opinion. And this is one of the reasons why they didn't want Elon Musk to buy Twitter. And they tried to fight him on it. 
Yeah, I mean, I think I think Twitter kind of stands alone in this a little bit. Uh, and there's two reasons for that. Like, uh, all the other so- major social media companies do make money, and they make a lot of money. Um, Twitter is a very North American thing. I won't lie. So, um, it has probably the greatest pull for the politically active um, people. And so, if I was the FBI, the CIA, or, or whatever, uh, I would probably choose Twitter anyways as my sort of like in, you know, how do we figure out who's doing what and where. Uh, also, Twitter had a horribly constructed uh, code base and uh, a, a, an employee sort of like makeup that was just outrageously inflated. Uh, that was just, you know, it was just, it was badly run. And when it, whenever you have something that's badly run and too big, there's always things that happen that, you know, happen when no one's looking or happen when, uh, you know what it's like, like it, it's something chaotic happens. Like no one's, no one's noticing the guy stealing from the, the store down the street. Right. Right. So that's the kind of thing that I, I see in Twitter. Compare it to Facebook. Facebook's code base is fucking amazing. Okay. Like Facebook and Meta, the shit that they make is like top tier. Okay. Their, their code is top tier. All right. They know exactly how many bots they have in their platform. Um, they know exactly what their ads are going to be doing. They know everything that's going on. And so, you know, if the CIA or the FBI are going to get in there, they would have a much easier time trying to uh, figure out who's thinking what, as well as, you know, moving people to, to certain things. And that's why, that's why we had the Cambridge Analytica thing that was basically just on Facebook. Because even they realized that if you want to sway opinion, it's much easier to do that on Facebook because Facebook's own tools are just much, much better at targeting certain people for certain opinions. Um, and that's why a lot of political campaigns happen on Facebook and they spend more on Facebook than they do on Twitter. Um, we'll see if that changes. Um, but in general, like, yeah, compared to the other social medias like, like TikTok, Snapchat, uh, and the stuff owned by, by Facebook, like Facebook and uh, Instagram, I mean, it's, 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 it's no contest. I mean, compared to today, Twitter's code is so much better today since Elon Musk is basically, they, re- they rewrote the whole thing, uh, which is pretty amazing. Um, well, that's why I think, that, that's why I feel like it was, Twitter was functioning as an intelligence apparatus. Because yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised. It was chaotic. It was, nightmare. it was overstaffed. It wasn't yeah. making any money. And right. even if it wasn't known by, uh, I can't remember the previous CEO's name off the top of Jack my head. Dorsey. Jack Dorsey is the, is the guy that started it. I don't know if he was the CEO when Elon took over. I don't think so, though. I, I want to I say it was Sundar Pichai, but maybe that's ah, the, that's him. That's that is the guy. I'm pretty sure. Yes, or that's the Google guy. Oh, you're right. That is the guy for Alphabet. I yeah. See, I don't. I don't remember. But um, but the cha- <laughs> the chaotic nature of operations at Twitter during that time would create opportunity 
for bad actors to inflict chaos and spin narratives. And, and I mean, how many times did you hear a story about, oh, my, my Twitter account was banned. I can't believe I don't even know. They didn't even give me a reason, da, da, da. And then they appeal yeah. it. And then Twitter goes, oh, whoops, our mistake. It was an algorithm thing. And it just accidentally, like, when you know that so many intelligence agents worked with these platforms, I mean, Facebook itself, many people believe was a DARPA creation because DARPA had this program called LifeLog that officially ended on the same day that Facebook was founded. Whoa, that's a cool conspiracy theory. I like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a good one. Just look into LifeLog if you're interested in doing any extracurricular. I feel like, uh, I feel like you know, it'd be more believable for me if Mark Zuckerberg was the DARPA creation. Uh, because he gives off that sort of like robotic, you know, experimental energy. Well, and I also believe, I mean, not deeply, but I do, <laughs> I do tend to believe that whenever Hollywood makes a movie, Oh, yeah. About a particular event, you know, a, a, a real life event. It's, a, it's just furthering the conspiracy against the people. And that movie, they had that movie, The Social Network, that says, oh, Mark Zuckerberg was uh, a, a womanizer and uh, basically a thief. And, and he stole this idea from the Winklevoss twins. And that was how the yeah. whole... I mean, why not make a movie about the story that DARPA created <laughs> as to the invention of Facebook? Now, maybe... God, what a mindfuck that would be. I mean, it's, it's likely, or more likely, I guess, in my opinion, that Mark Zuckerberg was working on something like Facebook. And when the intelligence agencies learned of this, this project, they thought, okay, perfect. Let's get in Zuckerberg's ear. We'll tell him he's our guy. We want to use his thing and we're going to make it like this. And we're, oh, we're also going to steal this idea. It was basically like you agree to be the CEO of this life log uh, apparatus and you can call it whatever you want, and you just go along. You go along as the founder of Facebook, which is really just the cover for LifeLog, and we'll make you rich. Or it's like you said, Mark Zuckerberg is a robot and <laughs> just is just parading <laughs> like he's or an alien. Yeah, he's a water-cooled robot with a little alien living inside. Yeah, like pulling levers and like, you know, <laughs> turning the little key on the back of him to wind him up. Well, that settles it. <laughs> yeah, it, 100%. Facebook was started by DARPA invented Mark Zuckerberg. Um, and that's why Mark hasn't aged. And that's why he will never age. It was uh, Parag Agrawal. Ah, the, the original CEO of Twitter. I don't, I don't know if I ever God, got that. I would, not have, I would not have got that. Um, I would not have got that. Wow. 
because it was all Jack Dorsey. It was Jack Dorsey the whole time. Jack Dorsey, Jack Dorsey. And then I feel like uh, he wanted to like, like he, he didn't want to go along with it anymore. He didn't want to go along with the intelligence and manipulation of, I mean, I'm sure he would love to hear me uh, hypothesizing this to be the case. Yeah. I, I still don't fully trust him, especially not with his freaking Muslim beard like that immediately made me skeptical. And I guess that makes me a racist. <laughs> like, I, I, I don't know. It's so funny, by the way. That is so funny. I don't trust the beard on that guy. But dude, these people. OK, this is going to be does he go on holiday. Where does he go on holiday? Right. Mecca. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Where does he shuffle his carpet? This is going to make me sound like a terrible racist, but it's, it's, I mean, dude, it's the Muslim orthodoxy. Wage jihad on the infidels. That's right. And it's, I mean, it's sad. I don't, I don't think all Muslims are bad people. I know that there's a, a distinction between Muslims and Arabs. Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. But when you hear, and maybe uh, this, point of view is just a product of, of American propaganda. But when you see that the orthodoxy of Islam is wage jihad on the infidels, and then you realize yes. that like step one jihad is just become accepted in society. Well, you're not going to get accepted into society by saying, oh, yes, these religious beliefs that I hold very deeply in my soul say that all non-believers should be converted or killed. You're not going to gain a foothold in society. So yeah, yeah. you would obfuscate and go, no, no, that's not like, I mean, you would pull like a Mormonism thing. One of the, one of the things that gets Mormonism so widely rejected is the polygamy thing. Like, oh, you can have multiple wives. The church says that's okay. Well, that's kind of weird. But then the church changes its official position and says, no, no, no. I don't have multiple wives. And, uh, oh, yeah, it was Joseph Smith. I don't remember if I got that out either. I'm, I'm feeling the yeah. effects of my 2 a.m. morning. He was the founder of Mormonism, not Joseph Young, which I don't think, I mean, that probably is a real person, maybe even a person associated with Mormonism but definitely not the founder or, or one of the co-founders. <laughs> so if you're, if you're running around the Western world telling all of these people to accept you as an Arab Muslim that will inevitably try to kill or convert all of you, you're not going to get any foothold in society. No, really. But, the but you know, <laughs> how, how do you... How do you speak to these? And there is a massive distinction, like between, you know, like the jihadists and like other Muslims. And a great example of this is like most of Indonesia is Muslim. Well, right? and another thing I just need to say because I'm feeling self conscious about my racism. Okay. It's just because it might say in the Quran that a good Muslim will wage jihad on the infidels, it doesn't mean that those people are incapable of their own agency. To say, no, I don't agree with that. I don't agree. A, a, you know, I'm, I'm still a Muslim, but I don't agree with the violent aspects of Islam. That's, I mean, I consider myself to be a Christian, but most people would say, oh, you're a bad Christian. You're, you're not, you know, 
you can't call yourself a Christian because you do non-Christian things, uh, according to the Bible. Yeah, you don't crusade around, you know, Persia. Well, not yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's coming down, man. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. sad. And I, I feel like that's where a lot of this social media misinformation or disinformation i mean i like to call it propaganda i'm not down with all the malinformation disinformation misinformation words it's all just dressing up what it really is which is propaganda and that's another thing that really drives me crazy about social media and the messaging and the bots and even even if they're not bots you can reach out to a person and say hey uh, $500 to your PayPal if you retweet my post or if you create an original post uh, pushing X narrative. It means you have to be very discerning about what you're reading on social media from all of these random accounts. And isn't it interesting that we've arrived at this, this point in culture, at least in America, where you really can't trust any of the social media or uh, mainstream media outlets that are reporting the news. You have to rely on, well, like it, hopefully you're relying on independent journalists like Glenn Greenwald. But otherwise it's just some random guy posting on Twitter. And like, it drives me crazy when somebody will make a sensational claim yeah. In their Twitter post, breaking all in caps, blah, 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 this crazy thing. And it's like, what? With no link, with no nothing to back it up. It's like, dude, come on. Like, how can you expect, like, yeah. try to try to earn a little bit of credibility? No, for sure. They just take a shit on your inbox. You know? <laughs> yeah. They do. It's like, like what is this? It, it literally is. They just, they just, you know, squat over your fucking you know, trending page and just shit right on top of it with some bullshit fucking nonsense. Uh, I mean, they're hoping to appeal to like your confirmation bias. Like, Oh, I want this to be true. So I'm going to believe that it's true. It's like all of this stuff. So, so recently, I mean, the, the Palestinian Israeli war is still raging, but the most recent, uh, well, it, so it, it came out, it was completely sensational. Israel has bombed a hospital in Gaza. And this triggered worldwide protests. Like, I think actually one of the, one of the things that I read was um, Hamas, or I I should say Palestinian protesters were assembling outside the UK embassy in Lebanon. I want to say. And it all happened. It was spooky. It all happened simultaneously all around the world. There's going to be pro-Palestinian. Why are they bothering us? Fuck off. Because you're the infidel. You're you're a you're a Protestant. You're you know whatever. You're you're a non-Muslim. You're so you must be must be converted or killed. Right, next time, Lebanon, when you leave a bunch of fucking fertilizer hanging around, we won't help out when it fucking explodes. How yeah, about that? That's right. That's right. Idiots. And that, that's what this is. It's, it's, another, it's another wedge to drive between the population. Are you pro-Palestine? Are you pro-Israel? You have to pick a side. 
But this story came out that Israel has bombed yeah. a hospital in Gaza. And on cue, all of these pro-Palestinian groups started protesting at Western embassies across the world. Then two days later, it's now been revealed that in fact, it was one of Hamas's own missiles that landed on the hospital. Or it was, right. it was actually, wait, I should have, <laughs> I should have written it down, but. I know Israel said, nah, it's not us. Yeah, it was, well, and then, and, and Gazan officials have even come out and said, yeah, it was a, it was a misfire or, or I don't know if it was, I, I, I mean, I'm sure they're trying to confuse the facts because we know that Hamas puts their missile sites on top of schools and hospitals. And in, yeah. in, in the basements of these buildings, which would be civilian targets, they, they're, these cowards hide behind civilians because they know that if they can make Israel kill more civilians, it's going to hurt their case with the global community. Yeah, and if definitely. they can, if, if, if Gaza and Hamas can launch enough false flags and kill enough of their own civilians, they can maybe convince Iran to become involved because Iran wants to be involved in my opinion. Yeah. And so does Saudi Arabia really, which I also agree with. Yeah. If they can, and maybe even Egypt, maybe even Egypt won't have a go. Well, that's the thing. If these are all Islam, uh, you know, Islamic countries, then they are obligated. Yeah. By their religion. To, destroy the infidels and wipe yeah, israel I mean, what yeah. like one I mean, of the for, things for i saudi arabia saudi arabia would be tough <laughs> if they started they would have to deal with the u.s it will i mean and and i don't even know if i was israel i don't know that i would trust the united states at this point because there's even uh there's lobbyists what is it here's this i prepared this article from the free beacon Biden admin appointed Palestinian government lobbyist to steer Mideast foreign aid strategy. So there's literally Palestinians in the American government right now. Interesting. And I'm sure Israel has a much better grasp on the depth of this infiltration than any media outlets have. So if I was Netanyahu, I would be very skeptical of whatever level of involvement the United States wants to have in this conflict yeah. at this time. That's probably why they're not asking for help. And we've, we've already, I mean, nevertheless, we've deployed 2,000 Marines to Israeli waters. And we've, we moved a carrier group into the Mediterranean to at least create the appearance of, you know, interest in in the conflict that's going on and even and this is one of the last bits of content i ingested last night was the story that was actually announced over the weekend that joe biden's going to israel he's there right now he landed in tel aviv this morning who who did joe biden really i can't freaking believe it dude first of all what time what, what time zone is it uh, well, that's, that's a great question. <laughs> oh my God. This, 
how does he stay awake? How does he stay alive? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, Joe, there's turbulence coming up. You better get the heart monitor out. Jesus fucking Christ. I don't know how the fuck they cart that dude around, you know. He, they wheel him around like on one of those ha- on, on one of those Hannibal carts. Yeah, I wonder if they'll have to use the spit guard as well, like they used in Hannibal, you know, as well in Science of the Lamb. What time is it? I am I am coming up dry on what time it is in Israel. We're just gonna Google it. Yeah. It it's, must be like almost twelve hours. Five yeah, it's five PM. So I don't know. I don't know what he's doing there. I would be distrustful, as I mentioned, of his very presence. And a lot of people are speculating that this is how they will get rid of him. Not necessarily that he will be assassinated, but well, that, get rid of Joe Biden. Yeah, but that they will. <laughs> because here's the, the, this is the the problem facing the Democrat Party. They're very unified. They are fiercely unified. And this is actually right. one of the things that the, the Israeli-Palestinian split has exposed. Everyone that's protesting for Hamas, all of the pro-Hamas protesters, they're all pink-haired leftists. They are the people that elected wow. Joe Biden. You see, I don't understand this. Like, I don't understand this. Useful idiots, man. Useful idiots. What the fuck? You know, it's one thing to support Palestinian people, of which normal Palestinian people are just normal fucking Muslim people. But to support Hamas is crazy. To support Hamas is to support terrorism. But, the you know, just be like, hey, look, you know... I support the Palestinian people and I think both Palestinians and Israelis should live in peace and all that sort of stuff. That is not a controversial thing to say. But to say that I support Hamas is fucking crazy, bro. That's like saying, yeah, the Taliban, that's my guy right there. Or saying ISIS-K is my guy. Or yeah. saying... Al-Qaeda. Some, yeah, or saying like the KKK is the shit that I'm, I'm down with. Why? Well, and that, yeah, was, I, that was one of the things that, that came to mind when, when the protests were first kicking off. Wow, what the fuck? What if the, we, if, if the, the Ku Klux Klan attacked a town and butchered a thousand civilians, yeah. what, would, what would be the American response? Oh, ceasefire? Ceasefire and, and come to an agreement? Hell no. Wow. Hell no. It would be open season on anyone suspected of being a, a member of the Ku Klux Klan. But Hamas oh, yeah, goes yeah. And, atta- and, and basically does the worst terror attack ever in, in the history of Israel. And immediately, governments around the world, Western governments, are calling for an Israeli ceasefire. Like, no, no, that, that's cool. Let them just carve up a thousand of your citizens and then don't retaliate. Send no message in response. Give me a break. There is no yeah, freaking way. Very strange. It's very strange. There's I mean, no way look, that's a genuine belief. Look, I think that the best, the, the best, the, the best worldwide response you can really do is, is kind of sit on the sidelines and say, look, if you guys want to do peace talks, no problem. You can come to the UK, sit in sort of neutral ground, and you can hash it out 
where there's no chance of either of you guys getting assassinated or something. It's similar to how Ukraine and Russia sometimes do talks in Turkey. And that's the kind of way I think it should be done. It's none of our business, you know, whether Israeli should, Israel should or shouldn't attack back from Hamas or, you know, whatever the fuck. It's nothing to do with us. You yeah, know, it's, then, it's definitely, Hamas, yeah. it's a say less situation. Like, all right, let's just keep our mouths shut. Let, is, let Israel do its thing. And then we'll see what happens. But since that isn't what happened, since immediately there were calls from the Western world to, to have a ceasefire. And, and I mean, of course, we all want peace. Yeah, we do. Yes, of course. But it's just like, I mean, Hamas now has like hundreds, literally hundreds of hostages that they're going yeah. to try to leverage for who knows what. I mean, I don't think, I personally, I don't think anything. I think. The Middle Eastern world, the Arab Muslims and, and non-Arab Muslims are seizing in on, on what they feel is an opportunity to destroy Israel, to wipe Israel off the map. And they have the ability to do that. Iran wants to get involved. I think you're right. Saudi Arabia wants to get involved. And they all have their fingers in Western media. They have their hands on the strings. They can pull and push the narrative. And I've suspected that they were much more involved in the culture war in the West than anyone really. And I mean, like, look at Qatar. Qatar is, has worked very hard to stay out of the media. And they do that by paying off the media companies. Qatar is what, maybe the wealthiest nation? In the Middle East? Uh, yeah, you know, per capita, probably, yeah. I'm pulling it up. Yeah, per capita, because uh, their population is tiny for the amount of money that they Top have. five richest Middle Eastern countries from adamfayed.com. All right, don't do me wrong. Uh, <laughs> a reputable source by the name. Oh, it says, it says they're the third wealthiest. Saudi Arabia, number one. Okay. 1.732 trillion GDP. God damn. The United Arab Emirates. Oh, the UAE, of course. 673 billion. Yes. And yes, yes. add closed. And Qatar with a GDP of 258 billion. Wow, that's outrageous. That's actually crazy for how many people live in Qatar. It's very small. And as well from as my brave Saudi Arabia too. From, from my brave summarizer, it says that Qatar is the wealthiest country in the Middle East based on GDP per capita. Oh, shit. Yeah, okay. That makes sense. I, I figured as much because they have very few people that live there. But when's the last time you heard about Qatar's involvement in anything? I mean, you got to <sighs> dig. You got to dig deep. Oh, for sure. To find I mean, the Qatar only thing involved. I know about them is, you know, now the Middle East is getting involved in Premier League football. So that's the only real thing that I know about the, the Middle East uh, recently. Um, yeah, but they do, they do love to keep a very low profile and their government setups allow that, allow that to happen really easily. Well, and this is one of the reasons that the Biden administration is coming under fire for sponsoring terrorism. This is what they're saying that, that, 
you know, the headlines that Biden is financing both sides of this Israeli-Palestinian war because, you know, he unfroze $6 billion of assets in, uh, in Iran. And they say that was it. Wasn't that, wasn't that for hostages though? Yeah. Yeah, it was, but this is, I mean, it's still there. There's still, uh, the right wing media is still using that as a, you know, a bludgeoning tool. And then this this article yeah, from uh, hard hard argument to make from a year ago, a little over a year ago. U.S. announces 316 million for Palestinians as Biden visits West Bank. And this article was from July 14th, 2022. So they, I think they have an argument. I'm not saying they're right. Oh, for sure, yeah, for sure. And and you know there was always a concerted effort on some to some level on both sides to, to bring it to a peaceful resolution. Of course, Netanyahu has basically zero appetite for a peaceful resolution, uh, a, dip- a diplomatic resolution, um, which doesn't always help. Um, and he's been somewhat vindicated in what's happened here, but it's not like he really tried that hard uh, to, to go the whole way with it. Well, the further um, in we he- get, the more it seems like a a page right out of the american empire's playbook yeah like yeah not necessarily for israel but maybe for israel i mean there was definitely a level of benefit to netanyahu but but one of the arguments that i've heard against this that i i generally agree with is that israel hates hostages not they don't hate their hostages but they will i mean they will go so far as to destroy enemy convoys carrying israeli captives like like captive israeli soldiers or you know idf wow because they don't want to be not not only do they not want that soldier to be tortured for potentially uh sensitive information Mm. but also they can't be leveraged if if these people don't have hostages and everyone knows this the Arab world's world knows it. The Jewish world knows it. And this attack has also been in the works for two years. So basically, as soon as Biden surrendered in Afghanistan, Hamas and you know Muslim terrorists and extremists started planning their attack on Israel. And I mean, this is, this is documented. They've found planning documents in their raids you know the idf has so yeah, it's i mean not- this is this is like this is this is just like netanyahu really that this is this is like a massive l really for him uh just on the whole preparedness i understand there's a little bit of chaos in the first thing you know they're not expecting anything like this to happen before but i mean his whole mo was to be as prepared as possible for an eventuality like this, and I feel like now that it's happened, I, I, I do believe that a lot of Israeli people, some of them will probably lean even harder into Netanyahu and think, okay, yeah, we need someone like this to get us through this time. But there will be people that think, okay, this guy is not the right guy because, you know, some shit really did happen. And it was kind of horribly managed in the first hour or so, or the first day or so. Yeah, I just don't buy, I don't buy the the conspiracy theory that 
that Israel saw this coming and allowed it to happen? No, I don't see that either. That, how does that benefit them in any, any capacity? Well, and from the planning documents also, it was supposed to be like they had these huge weapon caches that they didn't even crack into. So I don't know if intelligence really did have their eye on, on these, you know, this incoming attack and these, these few attackers just managed to sneak by with their paragliders. But I don't think it's, you know, I agree with you. It's much more detrimental to Netanyahu that this did happen than it would be beneficial because he's allowed to, to assemble his government now. You know, it's, it's galvanized his support and now he can build his government and, and, you know, sort of solidify his rule in, in Israel. Yeah, for sure. It would have made more sense if it was more of a, you know, they had planned it all along and, you know, the the response to the initial attack was swift and calculated and made Netanyahu look like an absolute fucking rock star. Like he had that shit on lock, like it was all planned. That was not what went down. Um, and therefore that kind of kills that argument because why the fuck would anyone in politics want to make themselves look that bad? Like, I understand, like, or you make yourself look a little bit bad to cover up for something else. But this is like, you make yourself look like really unprepared to the point where people have died, you know, <laughs> and your mortal enemy in life, you know, has, has trespassed onto your land for a, for a great deal of time. That's too much heat for me to believe that that was somehow planned. Uh, it, it just seems more like they were rapidly unprepared and the chaos of the situation probably exacerbated that problem. And then finally, they got their fucking head out of their ass and decided to do something about it. Yeah, I think Israel needs to respond swiftly and ferociously because it, I, and I know, like, I don't want civilians to be killed, but we have to, we have to acknowledge that Gaza holds elections and Gaza elected Hamas. And I feel like no matter what Israel does, in dealing with this threat on their border. Yeah. There will be false flags and there will be claims of massive civilian casualties until Iran feels that they have the global support to get involved. And the yeah. same with Saudi Arabia and the same with Egypt, all of these Arab nations, they're all fun. They're all funding Hamas. Qatar included. One of, our, one of our best allies, by the way, we're supposedly in this great relationship with Qatar while they're funding Hamas to attack one of our other closest allies. So it's, it's a very complex and confusing. I mean, I don't know. I, I'm not really confused as much as I know that there's a lot more going on than we really know about. Yeah, I think that's why it's so hard to talk about this topic right now. I, that's why I always... Yeah, the fog I find of war. It really yeah, I find it really difficult to talk about um, the Ukraine situation as, as things happen in real time almost, as well as this war, um, because there's, there's no set beginning and end. And it is one of those things where 
it's very difficult to talk about information from the press that quite often just put stuff out there immediately with, without verifying various facts. To get the Some, clicks. That's right, exactly. So it's, I find it very difficult. And of course, I'm not really taking sides in this, uh, as I said in, my last, uh, in the last episode, um, because it's nothing to do with me. If Hamas and Israel want to fucking beat the shit out of each other and blow up a bunch of civilians, I mean, it sounds terrible, but that's on them. That is not something that I am going to get involved with politically, uh, on social media, nothing. Well, and I think all of us, right, want to see a two-state solution. I don't think a majority of the population wants to see one side wiped out. But we're told in the media that, oh, there's all, this, there's all these pro-Hamas uh, protests and demonstrations outside of embassies. It's, it's, it's all orchestrated. It's all organized. It's all financed by these yep. intensely wealthy Middle Eastern countries that hold this belief that Israel should not exist. One of the things I've learned since, since the last show is, is there's this thing called the three no's in Khartoum in something like uh, 1967 where the Arab nations got together to negotiate peace with Israel. And instead, they got the three no's declaration, which is no recognition of Israel, no negotiations, and no peace, which went on for 10 years before Egypt was like, all right, we're going to drop the no, the, the three no's legislation or, or you know, resolution, whatever it was. But that really throws a wrench in all of the stories about uh, the Gazans. They, they, they just, they don't have a choice. Their backs were up against the wall and they had to do something. Okay, well, they planned this attack for two years. So were their backs up against the wall and they had to do something? Or did they plan the attack for two years? Well, we know that they planned the attack for two years. We know that they elected Hamas in Gaza. We know that the one of the foundations of their religion is destroying the infidels. And there's no one, there's no group that Orthodox Islamists hate more than the Jews. And I don't really know where that comes from. I mean, I, I, I planned to look yeah. into why the, the Muslims hate the Jews so much. The only thing that I've been able to find, and I did find this pretty cool article from uh, the Christian Science Monitor, which uh, wow, you should Christian definitely, science, yeah, That's yeah, cool. You should definitely take with a grain of salt. <laughs> but it really just sort of outlines. Um, maybe I'll just read some of it uh, to wrap up the show here. It's it's not very long. By Ion Hersey Ali from January twenty fourth. 2013, Cambridge. Egypt's newly elected president, Mohamed Morsi, was caught on tape about three years ago, so this would have been 2010, urging his followers to, quote, nurse our children and our grandchildren on hatred for Jews and Zionists. Not long after, the then leader of the Muslim Brotherhood described Zionists as, quote, bloodsuckers who attack the Palestinians, warmongers, and descendants of apes and pigs. These remarks are disgusting, but they are neither shocking nor new as a child growing up in a Muslim family. I constantly heard my mother, other relatives, 
and neighbors wish for the death of Jews who were considered our darkest enemy. Our religious tutors and the preachers in our mosques set aside extra time to pray for the destruction of Jews. For far too long, the pervasive Middle Eastern qualification of Jews as murderers and bloodsuckers was dismissed in the West as an extreme view expressed by radical fringe groups, but it is not. All over the Middle East, hatred for Jews and Zionists can be found in textbooks for children as young as three, complete with illustrations of Jews with monster-like qualities. (laughs) Why that makes it makes me laugh because I picture that meme, you know, the one. With the, the hand-drawn picture of the Jew with the... I mean, it's a cartoon with the... the yeah, with his hands rubbing together. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the gigantic nose and the... Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's more Islamist propaganda. Uh, mainstream educational television programs are consistently anti-Semitic. In songs, books, newspaper articles, and blogs, Jews are variously compared to pigs, donkeys, rats, and cockroaches, and also to vampires and a host of other imaginary creatures. And he ends with, consider, oh, oh, I probably shouldn't get into that because it's going to go, or actually, no, I will. This, we're going to run over, but this, uh, this part is interesting. Consider this infamous dialogue between a three-year-old and a television presenter, eight years before Mr. Morsi's remarks. And then it's a dialogue. Presenter, do you like Jews? Child, no. Three-year-old child. Presenter, why don't you like them? Jews are apes and pigs. Who said this? Our God? Where did he say this? In the Quran? The presenter responds approvingly. Quote, No parents could wish for Allah to give them a more believing girl than she. May Allah bless her, her father, and mother. This conversation was not caught on hidden camera or taped by propagandists. It was featured on a prominent program called Muslim Woman Magazine and broadcast by Ikra, the popular Saudi-owned satellite channel. It is a major step forward for a sitting U.S. administration and leading American newspapers to unequivocally condemn Morsi's words, but condemnation is just the first move. Here is an opportunity to acknowledge the breadth and depth of the attitude toward Jews in the Middle East and how that affects the much-desired but elusive peace process between Israel and the Palestinians. There's a few more paragraphs, but I think that's enough for now. This was when Barack Obama, who many suspect to be a Muslim, was the president of the United States. And unfortunately, I think we are witnessing the product of Obama's eight years in office. There was a scandal involving Obama giving pallets of cash to uh, Iran, you know, probably right around the time that this article was written. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's, it's conspiracy theories and there's another side to the story, of course. But I don't think we can look at this situation and say, oh, both sides are equally responsible when one side has refused every potential agreement in negotiations at every turn and the other side seems to want to just be left alone with their sliver of a country that's the size of New Jersey. But As I said in the previous episode, everyone deserves to live in peace. Yeah. And if you're not going to respect that everyone deserves to live in peace, well, then I think you kind of deserve whatever retaliation comes your way. I want to be sympathetic to the Palestinians. 
I mean, the, the last number I heard regarding the election of Hamas was 44%. Hamas was elected with 44% of the Gazan vote. Which means there's what, 66%? Or uh, 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 56% of the Palestinians in Gaza, or, or I should just say the Gazans, that didn't vote for Hamas. I think Hamas or not, just quit killing your neighbor. And maybe we can all live in peace. What say you? Yeah, man, look. Uh, as I said before, fuck it. It's nothing to do with me, but I wish that um, whatever happens, man, that it, that it ends quickly. So that, uh, you know, human lives don't have to be wasted for a couple of, you know, quite um, authoritative governments and their insecurities. Well, that's why they're, they're referred to as Islamo-fascists, and they supported Hitler. I mean, not surprisingly so. If they want to destroy the Jews, would you... I mean, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I think it's a similar situation with what we have going on in Ukraine. If the Western world and the other nations involved turn their backs... Or say, this doesn't have anything to do with me. Well, then it ends up that Russia just can, what, run roughshod over all of Europe because nobody intervened to stop them at Ukraine? I feel like we can have the same concern about these Arab nations that want to destroy Israel. I mean, even though they can claim, no, no, we just want to wipe the Jews off the planet and then we'll be fine. We have no reason to believe them. The no, same of course. We... I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, it's like, I don't know, for, for me personally, it's like, how much does it affect my, my life? You know, the, the war in Ukraine is slightly different for me because, you know, I live in Europe and the war in Ukraine has significantly hit my life um, in terms of like food and also fuel prices. So, you know, I kind of want to stick it to the Russians just for blowing up my fucking life in terms of costs. Like, you know, right. the, the war in Israel and fucking Palestine, like, we don't do any trade with those guys, so I don't really give a shit. They just need to get, on, just get it over with and, and end it. I did hear, I, I did read a headline that says, if the Middle East war blows up, we can expect our, our energy prices to skyrocket. But I, we, it doesn't have to go there. Israel can, it, it's... The invasion has begun. They've, they've been, uh, well, actually, I don't know if technically the invasion has begun, but they've been bombing targets and they've been telling the Palestinians to evacuate. That was actually another one of the propaganda stories that came down. Uh, it, the Gazans accused uh, Israel of attacking a civilian convoy that was trying to evacuate Gaza along this. Israeli designated evacuation routes. But then it comes out, oh, it was, I mean, Hamas says, well, it was just an accident, but we're actually the ones that attacked that, that convoy. And you can see the video of it. It's clearly an IED along the side of the highway that these people are trying to use to evacuate. So we're, we're, we're expected to believe that Israel 
went into got went five miles into Gaza or however far into Gaza it was and planted an IED along the highway just so that they could kill evacuating civilians. Like who is that going to benefit? All of these civilian casualties benefit Hamas because they earn sympathy from the globe when they're able to convince said globe that Israel is killing their civilians indiscriminately. But all they need to do, I, I feel like it's fair at this point to say, all right, Israel, you've gotten your pound of flesh, negotiate for the release of the hostages and, and be done, right? Like how, I mean, I understand Israel's position with the whole, like, oh, we got to mow the lawn aspect. Like it's, it's, it's trotted out there. Like it's this horribly detestable thing. What they're really saying is we attack Hamas. Hamas gains their strength over the course of however much time. And then they attack us again. So then we have to go in and blow up their stuff and reset them. And then they start gathering more weapons and ammunition and missiles and missile sites. And then they attack us again. And so I understand that there's probably a lot of support in Israel to just wipe them out. But that's not going to earn them the support from the Western worlds. Just like, I mean, not, not in the same way that murdering Israelis is getting support for Hamas from the Arab world. Did you know they have a, uh, what they call a pay to slay program? Have you heard what? of that? A what? Pay, no. to, pay to slay. I, I, had an, I had an article here. Um, let me just type it into the search bar. Or I, sh- I should probably say Hamas or, or Palestine. Pay to slay. And then I'll pull up this article from News Wars. Which is, do you know what News Wars is? No, I don't actually. It's Alex Jones. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, not, not the most appreciated news outlet. I love that guy for the, just the pure energy he has. I don't really listen to what he's saying content wise. Yeah. But the energy he has, fantastic. He's, he's a little too extreme for me. And, and there's a level of authenticity from him that I don't, I don't get. Like, I, can, I feel like I can kind of see through him a lot of the time. Yeah, I mean, well, look, you know, he is, I love his uh, interview on the Joe Rogan podcast. I thought that was one of the funniest things I've ever listened to in my life. That was actually uh, a really great appearance. Uh, but his show now is really sensational like you you can really tell that he's playing to his audience which is fine that is fine i'm all for it actually i'm probably gonna i'm probably gonna watch it when we get off this podcast just to laugh about uh, at him he's very entertaining if you can get past some of the other qualities which i personally can't but he also i mean his credibility is still pretty good, even though he's sensational and he's, you know, maybe a little inauthentic 
But he's, he put out this article on newswars.com. Report, Palestinian authority to pay out $2.7 million this month to families of dead Hamas terrorists who attacked Israel. And this article was from October 17th. Wow. And that's, wow, the, wow, wow. that's the pay to slay program. And what's this on Reddit from two years ago? The Palestinian Authority is increasing payments to terrorists. So can we really believe that this is all just a cry for help? I mean, we went into the, on the last podcast that there, that there are major Middle Eastern governments financing Hamas and, and the other Arab nations around Israel, like, you know, in Hezbollah, which is another basically terroristic paramilitary organization out of Lebanon, I think, explicitly to attack Israel and kill Jews. And this is another reason that uh, the Palestinians themselves don't want a two-state solution. Because then they get their own state. Well, now they have to produce things. They're expected to not attack Israel at every opportunity. And that cuts off a major revenue stream. You know, that, that's, and, and this is why it's, it, it, will, it will never be accepted. Yeah, because it's very much like the Taliban. Hamas is very much like the Taliban where, you know, like they're, they're a great during war party, let's say, a party. Um, but once they've won, now they're fucked because now there's no enemy. Yeah. Now there's, you know, now, now, now the public look to them to solve their problems and they can't do that for them. So Hamas is in a con- has to have a constant state of war because that, that uh, validates why they exist. Well, and if they did get their, if they did get their two state solution, I mean, it, or, or, or even if they do wipe Israel off the map and kill all the Jews, well, I mean, who would they attack next? Would they, would they just stop attacking? I don't think so. I think, I think the targets would then be Christian countries. Christian European countries, France and Germany and the UK. That's why it's tough to let bygones be bygones or, you know, another sure, cliche yeah. like that. So visit Vox404.com. Subscribe to this show on whichever podcast platform you like. Follow me on Twitter at EarthVox. Send me an email, therealearthvox at protonmail.com. 404 final words. Thanks for listening uh, this week. I'd love to get into next week some of the more local news. Um, I know the whole Israel-Palestine thing is kind of sucking up all the air of everything, but there's some really interesting things happening locally in different uh, countries, like the referendum vote that we just had in Australia. Very, very interesting. Can't wait to talk about that, as well as the recent election in Poland, which has been very surprising to many people um so thanks again for listening to this episode what you can do now is listen to the very last one because we got into a few really cool topics with that and i would really appreciate it if you can give me a follow on x i'm just getting more into doing the whole twitter thing and i'm at 404 missing underscore link thanks we'll talk to you soon